Amen. He is mighty to save. You know, the, uh, the evangelism linebacker was tongue-in-cheek. Um, when you preach on evangelism and the need to share your faith, it makes folks anxious. It makes folks a little nervous, and so we thought we'd put a little humor out there to set the stage. Um, and and I, got, I had this great thought, though. I thought, you know, there's probably some linebackers at WKU that need a part-time job. And uh, maybe we could hire some of them to help motivate Eastwood Baptist Church to share our faith with those around us. No, I'm kidding. This morning, as a, mean of it, as a means of introduction, I want to speak to you about the most exclusive club in the world. The most exclusive club in the world, and there's only one qualification to get into this club. It's not money. Forbes magazine says that Jeff Bezos is worth $137 billion. Forbes says there's 2,208 billionaires in the world, and not one of the members of this club is in that group it's not fame I looked up the most famous people of 2018 LeBron James was number one James Corden was number two go all the way down Dwayne Johnson the rock was number nine and only one club member made the top ten it's not popularity I looked to see who had the most Instagram followers and it's Cristiano Ronaldo the soccer player 153 million people follow him on Instagram on Twitter Katy Perry has a hundred and 6.8 million followers. I didn't find any of the members of this club in that list. It's not power. 2018 Forbes listed the most powerful people in the world. And number one, they said the most powerful person is the president of China. And number two is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. The most exclusive club in the world only has four members. And there's only one qualification. There's only one way to get in, and that's by title. The title, the former president of the United States. There's only four members. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. The President's Club. Now contrast the most exclusive club in the world with the most inclusive organization in the world, the church. Again, there's only one qualification. There's only one way to become a member. You have to be a missing person. Now, what do I mean by missing person? A missing person is defined as somebody who is far away from God. You have to be that in order to get in. It's the most exclusive club, or most inclusive club, and yet it still requires an invitation. But here's the good news. Everybody in the world is invited. There's not a person who's not invited to be a member of the organization called the church. We're in a series called My New Life. Our mission statement, if you were to go to the webpage and click on what we believe, it says that Eastwood Baptist Church exists for what? To develop relationships, to impact people with biblical answers to life's challenges. That's why we believe we're here. As a staff, that's why we believe God placed this church in this place for this time. So that we could develop relationships with people that would impact them with what? With biblical answers to whatever challenges they face. And so we've been looking at, in this series, we've been looking at the measures to say, how are we doing in our maturing as a disciple, as a follower of Christ? On our webpage, we have something called measures. And it's based on the name Samuel, because in 1 Samuel 3, 4, Samuel presents himself to the Lord and says, here I am, Lord. And it's our conviction that we ought to present ourselves to the Lord every day. 
And so we've been looking at the six measures, and really, they're all in the form of a question, and you're the one who answers the question in your own heart and mind, and based on your answers to, your, to the questions that are posed to you, that tells you where you are in your maturation, in your growing to be more like Christ, in your discipleship. Uh, we've already looked at four. The S stands for spiritual gifts. And the question is, am I using my spiritual gifts? Now, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you're obviously not using them. Even if you do know what they are, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are using them. And so, how would you answer that question about yourself? Am I using my spiritual gifts? The A stands for abiding. And the question was, am I spending time with God daily? Do you read your word daily? Do you pray daily? Do you spend time with God daily? And Again, your answer to that question helps you to determine where you are in your spiritual maturity. The M stands for missions. And the question was, am I ready to go? Go where, preacher? Wherever God decides. Are you willing to sign your name to the bottom of the page and say, now God, fill in the details, I'm ready to go. If it's short term, I'm ready to go. If it's all of my life, I'm ready to go. How do you answer that? You was last week, understanding. Am I growing in my understanding of core biblical truths? There are some things that we have to understand and believe in order to be saved. You know, do you understand the atonement? Jesus took your place on the cross. Do you understand, are you growing in your understanding of the resurrection and what it means for you? Do you understand the importance of the inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth? These are all things that are significant. They are core biblical beliefs. And so are you growing in your understanding of what those are? Today, the E stands for evangelism. And uh, the question, now I put the wrong title, I gave my administrative assistant the wrong title, so it's, that's next week, am I known by love? The question today is this, am I friends with someone far from God? Am I friends with someone far from God? Take your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. We're going to look at Jesus' encounter with someone who was far from God and see what it teaches us today about evangelism. Luke 5, 27. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word. After these things, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead, be seated. To understand the text, let me explain to you the context. Up until this point, Jesus has only called four of the disciples to follow him. Andrew and Peter, James and John. I think it's chapter 6, maybe verse 13, when he finally has the 12 together. 
So Matthew was the fifth one to be called. But he calls those four fishermen and he says, follow me and I will make you, you no longer be fishers of fish, you'll be fishers of what? Men. He says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. And so now he's, he's here and he passes Matthew. He meets this tax collector named Levi. Now Levi was the Hebrew name. Matthew, which we really know him by, was the Greek translation of that name. And it's this Matthew who wrote the gospel that we call Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew as he writes his account of the gospel. So three things I want you to notice from the text today. The first thing is leadings from a sinner. There are some leadings, there are some ways that Matthew could lead us today that we could learn from. He's the tax collector in Capernaum. Now, those of you who have been to Israel, you know that Capernaum is on the north, uh, I guess it's the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It was the, excuse me, it was the, it was the home, earthly home of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, Capernaum was his home base. That's where he would often come back to, and that's where he would leave out of. And so Matthew, the Levi here, is the tax collector. As people are entering the Galilee, they, he would collect the, the tax. Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons, was now on the throne, and he, de- he demanded a certain amount, and the way it worked was a tax collector could charge whatever they wanted, then they would have to pay Herod whatever it was he required, and the rest they could keep. They would often charge double and keep the difference. So how did they get away with it? How did those tax collectors get away with it? We don't know, but it's likely that they had access to Roman soldiers. In other words, the soldiers were the muscle. The tax collector would say, hey, here's how much you owe. And they're like, I'm not going to pay that. And the soldiers would say, oh, yes, you are. And so they would. Tax collectors were despised. They were hated by the average Jew. The religious leaders couldn't stand them. They were considered traitors because they ultimately worked for Rome. They were considered the worst of sinners. There was nobody lower than a tax collector. The tax collector could not worship at the local synagogue much less go to the temple. They were not accepted because of their sin. Now, most likely, Matthew had heard of Jesus. Maybe he had seen him at a distance. But one day, Jesus is walking by the tax booth. And he gives a two-word command. He simply says, follow me. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I think it implies that Jesus just kept walking. I think Matthew had a moment of decision. He looked at the table of money and he looked at Jesus. Looked at the table of money and looked at Jesus. And it was at this moment that Matthew made the most significant decision he ever made in his life. It's the most, it's the most significant decision any person ever makes in their life, and that's the choice to follow Jesus. He got up and he followed Jesus. That was the choice that he made some of you here jesus is probably issuing the same command to you today to follow me to follow him and today you look at the things of the world and you look at jesus you look at the things of the world and you look at jesus and you have to make a choice which one am i going to choose which one am i going to chase after I think of all of the disciples, Matthew, had they voted once they, once they became the twelve, he probably would have been voted least likely to be called to follow Jesus. I mean, think about it. The rest of them, even though they're fishermen and a zealot, they were all upstanding Jews. 
Here's, here's the, the lowest of sinners. And so he'd have been voted least likely to be asked to follow Jesus. And I tell you that because there's some of you here today who think you don't qualify. You think, man, I'm, I'm the lowest of the low. He's still calling you. Now, if you wonder whether or not you are following Jesus, let's learn a couple of things from Matthew here. Number one, when you're following Jesus, he becomes the center of your life. When you're following Jesus, he becomes the center of your life. Up until now, Matthew has been focused on as much cash as he can get. And now he makes Jesus the center of his life. He takes his attention away from the money and puts it upon Jesus. I ask you today, what or who is at the center of your life? Let me explain it to you using our solar system. I had to read up on this this week. I did not realize how huge the sun is. In our solar system, the sun accounts for 99.8 or 99.9% of our solar system. That's how big it is. Jupiter is 300 times the size of Earth. And the sun is 1,000 times the size of Jupiter. That's how big it is. It's huge. The gravitational pull of the sun is what keeps the planets in orbit. Now, your life, your life in the solar system, you're the solar system, Jesus is the sun. He should be central to your life. The planets are the things that are in your life like money and possessions and, and pleasure and, and your career, and those are all the things that are rotating around but if any of those things move into the center, your life gets out of kilter, out of kilter, and you, things go haywire. I mean, think about it. If the sun, instead of having the planets orbit the sun, if the sun made, made a choice, okay, I'm going to start orbiting some of the planets, man, our whole universe would get messed up. Our whole solar system would be out of whack. And it's that way in the life of a Christian. When Jesus is not the center of your life, when something else is the center of your life, everything's out of whack. Another way you know that you're following Jesus, when Jesus, when you're following Jesus, you will invite him into your home. What's the first thing Matthew does after following Jesus? According to our passage here, Jesus tells him, follow me. And the very first thing he does is he throws a party. He left all, rose him, followed him, verse 29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own home. He invites Jesus to come into his house. You know, there's something to celebrate when somebody chooses to follow Jesus. I mean, the scripture says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'm so glad that we clap when people get baptized. I mean, I, I think we ought to be celebrating because that person is giving us a visual demonstration of what Jesus has already done in making them a new creation, a new believer. And we ought to celebrate that. Oftentimes you come into a Baptist church and it looks more like a funeral than a festive occasion. I mean, they play Frankenstein music, and, and the preacher looks like he has perpetual heartburn, and the people have solemn faces in the pews, and it ought not be that way. This ought to be a time of celebration when we worship the Lord. I mean, Matthew throws a party. He doesn't know what to do. All he knows is he's following Jesus, and he just throws a party. He says, this is a great thing. Sadly, today, many refuse to allow Jesus in their homes. 
Many Baptists have this mindset. Well, let's just keep Jesus at the church house and we'll visit him on Sundays. But the last thing we want is him coming in and messing up things in the home. Changing things in the home. But when you follow Jesus, you will invite him into your house. Number three, when you're following Jesus, you'll want your friends to meet him too. Who's at the party? In verse 29, who's there? It says tax collectors, plural, and others. So the first thing Matthew does when he meets Jesus, he wants his friends to meet him. So he invites all of the tax collectors, all of his tax collector buddies, and the others would have been other friends of Matthew. They're there at his house for one reason, because he wants them to meet Jesus. That's the only reason that that they're invited. One of the measures that we have for evangelism is, am I friends with someone far from God? Am I friends with somebody who is far from the Lord? You know, what's Matthew do? Matthew invites them into his home. He has a supper for sinners. Now, he doesn't call it that, but that's in essence what it was. He used hospitality as a means of trying to invite his friends to meet Jesus. Some of you say, man, I've, I've invited people to church and they just won't come. I don't know what else to do. Well, learn from Matthew. Open up your home and allow hospitality the means by which you invite your friends to meet Jesus. I'm not saying preach to them when they come for dinner. I'm saying when it's time to eat, say, hey, we we ask a blessing over the food, so we're going to pray now. And then sometime during the course of the conversation, world events are going to come up or something like that, and then you just, you know, you just throw in, man, I don't know how people do it. With the world as messed up as it is, I couldn't do it without the Lord in my life. Or you talk about how much the church means to you. Just just find ways through hospitality to introduce your friends to Jesus. It's easy. Don't make it difficult. Be real. Have fun with those people. See, the people, the Matthews of the world, they don't think Christians have fun. And so make it a fun time at your house. Let them know you enjoy life. So we have some leadings from a sinner. Matthew leads us in some of the ways that we can evangelize. Secondly, we have some lapses of the snobs. There are some mistakes, some things that ought not happen in this passage. In verse 30, the religious snobs begin to criticize Jesus and his disciples for the people they're hanging out with. I read somebody called the scribes and the Pharisees the religious mafia. I like that, because I think that's what they were. They, 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 they didn't have anything good to say. They were snobs because there was no way they'd be caught dead in Matthew's house. I think clearly they were outside, and they could hear the music, they could hear the laughter, they could smell the food, and so people were probably coming and going inside the house. At some point, one of the disciples comes out, and they begin to criticize. We can't believe y'all are here doing this. It's interesting Jesus is the one who comes out and responds to him. In 1813, Jane Austen wrote the classic Pride and Prejudice. They, they are two sins that have plagued humanity since its inception, pride and prejudice. And they are deadly sins because they are invisible sins. It's not like you see pride. It's not like you see prejudice. And yet we see that in, in these 
religious snobs here. They were prideful because they were looking down their noses at Matthew and his friends as being less than them. We're good upstanding Jews and we wouldn't be caught dead with them. They were prejudiced because they were prejudging these people. How many of them besides Matthew do you think they knew? They may not have known any of the other tax collectors coming from various towns all around. They may not have known them personally, and yet prejudice is when you prejudge somebody's worth based on your impression of them. And that's what they did. They were, they were prejudiced towards these guys. If they didn't know them, and they call them sinners here, that's character assassination, that's slander, that's gossip. Is religious snobbery still a problem in the church today? I mean, we've come 2,000 years. Is religious snobbery still an issue? Do you know any nice, respectable Christians who don't want anything to do with wicked sinners? Sure you do. But Jesus loved and accepted sinners. Now, he didn't accept their sin. He didn't leave Matthew like he was. Matthew obviously changed because he wrote his own personal account of the gospel of jesus but to follow Jesus' example we have to be friends with people that are far from god there's a book that barbara taylor wrote called gospel medicine i love the illustration she used now now i'm going to read you just a little bit and then we're going to talk about not reading but tell you some more of the story that she puts in the book She said, if Jesus were putting together a sinner's table today at the local Denny's. So imagine Jesus is getting a a table of Matthews, the lowest sinners. If he's putting them together for lunch at the local Denny's, she said it might include an abortion doctor, a child molester, a garbage collector, a young man with AIDS, a migrant farm worker, a teenage crack addict, a motorcycle gang member, and an unmarried woman on welfare with five kids by three different fathers. And you come in with your friends, she says, and and you sit down and all of you are Christians and you're sitting at the table next to them and you hold hands and have the blessing over the meal and you're trying to talk to one another, but the the crowd at that other table is so loud it's hard for you guys to really hear each other and finally your friends get up and leave and you're sitting there by yourself and you notice that there is a empty seat at that table and the guy at the head of the table with the beard invites you to come over and to sit down with him what would you do now some of you say well preacher if i knew it was jesus i'd go over and sit down really you think by the way just as a reminder jesus said in matthew 25 when you do it unto one of the least of these, you do it to me. And so when you befriend those people that we just talked about, you're doing it to Jesus. Imagine the Christian life is kind of like walking through a door. You know, Jesus said, I am the door. He's the, he's the way that we enter into a relationship with God, ultimately enter into heaven. And so I want you to imagine that the Christian life is a door. When you go through the door, you're saved. Everybody on that side of the door is saved. Everybody on the other side of the door is lost. There's a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker who wrote a piece of 
poetry. And it's, it's, it really doesn't have any rhyme or meter. It's, just, um, it's probably just, I guess, a piece of prose. But he talks about the door, and I want you to hear because he says it so much better than I do. Here's what he says. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk to find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there. His point being that, see, sometimes when we've went through the door, the longer we're behind the door, the farther we go in, and, and our only friends are believers, and we learn how to sing and to pray and, to, and, and uh, to quote the Bible, but we don't know how to reach those outside the door. There's no use in my going way inside and staying there when there are still so many outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die. On cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, they die for what was within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find Him. So I stand at the door. Outside the door, thousands of them, millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. How many come looking for the door that we know is Jesus and they find prejudice? We look at them and they might have pink or green hair. They might have ink all over their body. They, 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 uh, they might have holes in places where God didn't put holes with all the piercings they have. And, and so what is our first inclination when we see people like that? Is our inclination to go up to them and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm glad you're here. Or is our inclination to kind of act like we don't see them? Church family, church guests, there's only one, only one kind of person who can come to Eastwood, and that's a sinner. I mean, this is, this is a hospital for sinners. This is where sinners come, and, and they meet the Lord, the one who can put their life back together. This is not a hotel for saints. So third, lessons from the Savior. Let's talk about what Jesus teaches us, and we'll be done. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says that he came to earth for the same reason a doctor goes to a hospital. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if you have a sickness 
there are three things you have to do if you're going to allow the doctor to be a part of your healing. Those same three things are what you have to do in order to trust Jesus to deal with your sin problem. First of all, you have to admit there's a problem. You will never go to a doctor until you first own up to the fact there's a problem. A lot of folks live in denial. Some men are just hard-headed. Yeah, I know something's wrong, but I'm not going to the doctor. Just don't do it. Well, ignorance is not bliss in this case. All right, you have to admit that there's a problem. And friend, if you're here without Jesus, you have to admit that you have a problem called sin and you can't save yourself. You can't fix it on your own. Jesus is using sarcasm here and the, the Pharisees miss it. He says, I didn't come to seek the, the righteous but sinners to repentance. And, and it, it's sarcasm because he's really telling them what Paul would say in Romans 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. But these guys didn't get it. They were so busy patting themselves on the back saying, God is so lucky to have me on his team. You have to admit that there's a problem. You have to admit it to Jesus. Secondly, though, then, once you admit there's a problem, you've still got to submit to the doctor. You still have to submit to him. You, you know, I go into the doctor's office, and my doctor comes in. First thing he asks is, hey, Tom, what's, what's going on? He wants me to tell him what the problem is. And you tell him, but you have to be willing to listen to what he says. See, if I tell my doctor what's going on, and, and he says to me what he thinks needs to happen, and I'm like, yeah, right, that ain't going to happen. If I don't get any better, it's on me. I have to be willing to submit to his plan. It's the same way with Jesus. When you admit that you have a problem with sin, you have to submit to the plan of salvation. There's no other way. But then you must commit to the plan. The doctor says, all right, here's what's going on. You need to take this medicine every day, and you need to follow this diet. And I promise you, if you do you'll be better. When you leave, you, you make a choice. Am I going to take that medicine and am I going to eat right? You have to make a commitment to the plan. It's the same way with Jesus. When you come to him, you have to be willing to commit yourself to him, to his plan for your life. You know, we, we've recently replaced a couple of appliances and in the back of Lowe's, there's an as-is section. You ever seen the as-is section? It's, uh, it's things that maybe they're the last in the last year's model. And it's been the floor model for months, and it may have a scratch or a dent in it. It's new, but it's just, you're buying it as is. There's no refunds, no exchanges. It's as is. So, you know, we'd go back there and look. We didn't purchase anything back there, but, but we would look to see what they had. They all had some kind of flaw. I tell you that, friend, because every one of us, if we were honest this morning, we would have to walk in here wearing a sign that as is. Because we're all flawed. We all, we all have dents and scratches and issues in our life. The only way that Jesus will receive you is if you come as is. You can't come to Jesus any other way than as you are. See, Jesus sees the as-is sign around Matthew's neck. Not a physical sign, but he, he sees it. But Jesus also sees the sign that says, 
here's what I can make him to become. So Matthew comes to follow Jesus as is, and Jesus makes him what he ought to become. Did you know that? I mean, throughout the Gospels, it's filled with people who had to come to Jesus, and Jesus accepted them as is. Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho. Another tax collector, a little short guy by the name of Zacchaeus, climbs up in a tree because he can't see over the crowd. Jesus stops at the tree and tells him, calls him by name, says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. We're going to have lunch at your house, big boy. And uh, he doesn't tell Zacchaeus, hey, clean up your life and I'll come home with you. Make a commitment and I'll come to you. Clean up, clean up your life or your house, I'll, I'll come. No, he, he takes Zacchaeus as he is. He goes to his house, but he doesn't leave him that way because at the end of the conversation, at the end of the meal, Zacchaeus says, if I've stolen from anybody, I'll pay it back four times. He's changed. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well. It's the middle of the day. Nobody comes to the well at the middle of the day, but Jesus is sitting there nonetheless because he knows she's going to come. The only reason she comes during the middle of the day is because she's the spiritual outcast. She has the scarlet letter around her neck. Jesus looks at her and he says, uh, why don't you go get your husband? She says, I don't have one. Jesus said, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're with right now is not your husband. Jesus accepted her as is, but he didn't leave her that way. At the end of John 4, she's, she's bringing villagers out to meet the one at the well who made a difference in her life. Even in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And he looks to his side and he sees one of the criminals. And he takes the time to accept that man as he is. Because he's committing his life to the plan. Committing his life to Jesus, submitting to him. And Jesus tells him, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. So friend, if you're here and you don't think God will accept you, nothing could be further from the truth. But the catch is you have to come as you are. You can't wait until you clean up your life because you will never be acceptable enough to, to God for salvation. You have to come as you are and then allow him to make whatever difference or change in your life that he wants to make. You know, when you come as is, he makes something beautiful. There's an old gospel song, old southern gospel song that the words are so true. They go like this, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful of my life. Maybe today all you have to offer Jesus is brokenness, strife. He can make something beautiful of your life. Come as you are, and he'll make the necessary changes. Let's pray together. As I lead us in prayer this morning, if you have a sin sickness, only Jesus can heal you and set you free. If today you've been healed and, and you are a follower of Christ, I ask you, are you friends with someone far from God? Father, I pray that during this time of invitation that we would be found obedient, 
to the drawing of your Holy Spirit. You've spoken. You've allowed us to hear. Your Spirit has applied the truth to our lives. Now may we respond in obedience. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.